Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News, where today we're going to go solo. No monologues, no news reviews. We're going to spend every waking minute of this podcast talking to a very impressive author, a great talk show and TV host, Steve Deese. You've probably seen him on The Blaze. Um, yeah, you've probably read his columns, seen him on television, heard him on radio. He's got a brand new book out with his co-author, Todd Erzin called The Faucian Bargain. Yes, we're talking about Anthony Fauci, in case you were wondering. The most powerful and dangerous bureaucrat in American history. What they were able to put together in this book is the first armchair quarterback of what really happened last year during the pandemic and how fateful decisions made in March and April dictated a year-long lockdown that science itself knew, science itself, all of the experts knew, throughout the pandemic playbook was wrong, was not based on any evidence. We're seeing that now with the MIT study on face masks, all the things we've been told. Um, there is a tipping point moment in this book that we're going to have Steve describe, but this is one of the most complete 30,000 foot looks at just armchair quarterbacking, what we got right and what we got wrong, what advice Trump failed to follow or should have followed, what advice he did follow that backfired, the moments that if we could get them back, the last year of history may have been changed it is a really powerful book. And I've done a lot of investigative reporting on Anthony Fauci going back to my days at the AP. The, the pattern of this story matches what I saw back in the AIDS crisis and epidemic in the 80s and 90s, what I saw in the 2000 investigations I did. Uh, but really, the reason to read this book is not to relive the horror of last year, not to impugn one man uh, or to make fun of Fauci or to whatever. It is that we learn the mistakes of the last 15 months, and we don't repeat them again. That is why this book is such a public service. Well, that's all we're going to do today. We're going to do a quick commercial break here from our great advertisers and sponsors. When we come back, we're going to spend the entire time with Steve Deese. You've seen him as a great conservative talk show host. Great new book, The Faucian Bargain. That's what we're going to focus on today. We'll be right back. Temp check. 
What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest. You've probably seen him on The Blaze, heard him on radio, seen him on TV, giving speeches, and now writing another great book. Joining us right now is the great show host, conservative thinker, Steve D. Steve, good to have you on the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me, brother. Good to connect again. How you been? It's good. It is. I'm, it's great to connect. It really is. And you've got a book on one of my favorite topics. I spent an early part of my journalism career exploring an earlier time of Anthony Fauci's career at NIH when he was developing AIDS drugs and testing those drugs on foster children in New York and had, having lost a victim in Tennessee. There was an effort to cover it up. There was a whistleblower who was fired and had to be reinstated under his watch. So I've, I've, I've been talking about Tony Fauci for about 20 years, and uh, you have this great new book, The Fauci and Bargain. Tell us what inspired you to write this. The last year of hell we've all been through, uh, and we've all been through this. I wish it was primarily because of coronavirus, but um, it's really what, what's happened here is the cure has been worse than the disease. Uh, and in our country, that is singularly driven by one individual, and Anthony Fauci. But as we point out in our book, uh, he is, if, if he had retired, he's age 80. If he had retired five, 10 years ago, if, if he didn't make it past the average lifespan for a white male in America, which is 78, um, I don't know that things would have been much different, John. Yeah, I think that's a, a very important point. You're right. He's, he's, a, he's a construct of the administrative state. A, a, a different creature would have emerged from the Black Lagoon. Maybe one that would have been uh, nicer, uh, maybe pricklier, shorter, taller. A different personality would have emerged, but a lot of the same notions uh, and same inclinations would have emerged alongside it. And I think that is important for audiences like ours to understand is that in Washington and in much of, of, of progressive power sectors across Western democracy, the likes of Anthony Fauci are legion. Yeah, it's a very important point. That's one of the things I learned when I did the earlier work in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we got all these emails and uh, communications between the scientists. And there's basically an ecosystem of federal scientists who all yes. think the same way, talk the same way, have the same ambitions. Yep. Many of them, uh, invent drugs or chemicals or capabilities at the taxpayer expense. And then they're allowed to get royalties from that. They personally profit from the taxpayers research. Uh, I exposed a lot of that back then, but you're, that was the most amazing that Tony Fauci was simply the head of a, of, of, of a, an organization. Of a hydra. Yeah. And, yeah. and they all thought the same way and they all uh, act the same way and they have the same ethos and it's, you know, billions of dollars a year funding and growing this mindset until it's in every university and every state. So you, uh, what, when we look at uh, Anthony Fauci, when we look at the NIH establishment, the scientific 
infectious disease community. What are its biggest flaws? How do they disserve the American public, not only in coronavirus, but, you know, we can go through other earlier pandemic concerns or mm-hmm. uh, where, where do you find a pattern of the disservice to the American interests? To me, I, I think, John, there's two bedrocks to our healthcare system as a, from a patient to, to practitioner standpoint relationship or from a coverree to a coverer relationship with you and an HMO, an insurance company or Medicare. And those two bedrocks are informed consent and a second opinion. And yet we, at this moment, have been denied both of those things for the last year plus when maybe we needed to rely on those fundamentals more than ever before. What would really shock me when I started pushing back on what I like to call on my show COVID stand, when I, you know, there was just this little ragtag bunch of us around the country at first that just kind of launched our little X-wing fighters at the Death Star waiting to see you know, are, are we missing something? Because the data doesn't add up. The, the IHME model doesn't add up. The Imperial College model doesn't add up. What are we missing here? And so day after day, week after week, we'd, we'd wait for some data point to come in that would crush us. And we'd be like, oh, okay, well, that, that, that explains why we made these decisions. We're more than a year into this. And as Dr. M- M- Dr. Marty Macari at Johns Hopkins just tweeted out about an hour ago, now the infection and hospitalization rates for COVID are actually lower than they were for flu in the 2015-2016 devastating flu cycle, okay? So we didn't get a second opinion. And what blew me away is from the very beginning, there were counter-experts, John, at elite places that were like, what the hell are we doing? I'll give some names to your audience. Dr. Martin Koldorf at Harvard. That's the number one university. He's been on Johnson News before, yep. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he designed the Bears Infinite website for CDC. Right. He was he, he was against this the idea of quarantining healthy people from the beginning. I think of Dr. Tony Kantak at Yale, Dr. Harvey Risch at Yale, yeah. Dr. John Ioannidis at Stanford. In fact, there were several Stanford figures before Scott Atlas emerged from the from the political think tank right. arm of Stanford. There were actually several just academics at Stanford that came out right away. This is a top five medical school it in is. the United States. And, and, they and particularly on infectious disease, especially is infectious disease, the, the very area yeah. that we're grappling with. Yeah, we had one on yeah. here. And uh, early on, I mean, in the summer, we're saying that we're, we're creating a cure that's far worse than the disease. You, you, look, at, you look at Oxford, John. That's U.S. Right. World Report rates at the number one university in the world. Its Center for Evidence-Based Medicine has been losing its mind on Boris Johnson for basically a year wondering, what are we doing the day after? The Imperial College model came out. One of their one of their epidemiologists, Dr. Sinitra Gupta, was in the pages of the Left Wing Economist the next day saying, "This is stupid. It's a bad model. This is bad policy." And so, uh, you know, I don't know about you or anyone in your audience. But somebody comes to you, a doctor, say a Dr. Fauci, comes to you and gives you gives you a very dire diagnosis, and says, basically, we're screwed either way. We either screw our civilization and, 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 and scores of people die, or we don't screw our civilization and even more scores of people die. I don't know, brother. You present me that Kobayashi Maru option if you get the Star Trek reference. I am uh, going to get a <laughs> yeah, second opinion. You know, I, I'm going to get a second opinion. And we never did that. The, the Trump White House during those 15 days to, to flatten the curve when we all kind of agree, but to initially take a timeout and see what we're up against here. That would have been a perfect time to put all these experts in a room on camera, unfiltered online or on C-SPAN, and just let the American public watch them, 
you know, question one another. We never did that. We still are, when Ron DeSantis attempts to get a second opinion with some of the experts I just mentioned, he brings them down to Florida. A year plus later, when we have data that shows that this virus, for most of us, is less lethal than the flu, but for the demographics that it, that it, it targets, it's far more lethal than the flu. When we have this kinds of data, and now, and now it's, it should be even safer to have these conversations. So Ron DeSantis brings these people down to Florida for a conference, gets, gets kicked off and banned on YouTube. All right, this is preposterous. It goes against our medical system that you're denied a second opinion. Three weeks ago, John, if you and I would have gone on our Twitter accounts and urged our followers, hey, don't get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We're getting emails from people about blood clots and yep. menopausal women banned. are saying they're having menstrual cycles. We'd all have been banned. Yep. But then when the government says it, now it's okay. I don't think that whole free speech thing begins from the premise of government tells us what is okay to say. So that's number one. And then number two, you know, um, where was the... Where was the informed consent? What, you know, when was there a White House coronavirus task force briefing where Anthony Fauci stood up and talked about, you know, you guys need to understand the backside of this, the lost cancer screening, the fact that all these companies are pouring all this R&D into these vaccines. That's R&D. They're not putting into cutting edge heart disease, yeah. cancer, paralysis treatment. Right. We've never considered any of that. We're on, a, we're, on the, we're on the brink of a mental health apocalypse, according to a lot of experts in that field, with the, de- with the, with the, the trend lines they're saying. Again, the, the law of unintended consequences. You know, you tell me I've got stage four pancreatic cancer. It's, it, it, it may or may not be operable, low survival rate. Um, but a doctor recommends I do a radical chemotherapy for a 10 or 20, 30 percent survival rate. You know, in a situation like that, John, a lot of people may decide, you know what, if, if I got limited days, it's really about the quality of them and not the quantity. And I'd rather, you know, spend them as best as I can with the family as best as I can and not getting irradiated with my hair falling out. Now, I don't know, but those are decisions you get to make when they bring you the full ramifications of both the, the affliction and then the solution. Yeah. Again, we were denied that, too. Such a powerful thing. Listen, the most powerful thing I noticed, and because I've seen this time and again in covering him over the years and the AIDS epidemic, I mean, early on, he was grossly wrong about the infectious uh, capabilities of the AIDS virus. And oh, there's so similarities. I remember as a kid during that time, we were going to get AIDS airborne. We were yep. going to get AIDS off the toilet seat. That's right. Um, it was going to invade the heterosexual community. Yep. All a, a lot of that alarmism and politicizing of that virus is exactly what we saw this game plan around as well. It, yeah. It's just remarkable. And then in this case, the flips and the flaps, there's so many of them, you can't keep track of them. Go when, when In March, when he said it's okay to go on a cruise line, that's absolutely insane. Anyone who's been on a cruise line and saw norovirus knows it's probably not a good idea to go on a cruise line when there's a, a, an early infectious disease until you find about it. So first he gives that advice, any flips, then masks don't work, masks do work. MIT comes out, says social distancing was a joke. It never would have worked outdoors at least. Um, none of the advice, he has been allowed to flip and flop without any consequence. More than a, I mean, that a politician would have paid more of a price. How did we get to this point in how much was the news media the enabler of the Fauci, Faucian bargain. I think that we, we fell victim to the, the pre-existing condition, pardon the pun. <laughs> of the, of That's the, fun. Of the, 
of the toxic relationship between the Trump White House and the media. And and I think that this was the one time the Trump White House blinked yep. as a result of that relationship yep. and believed that they needed to offer the part of the country that believes in orange man bad, kind of a softer side of tears, basically. That, that a, a softer voice um, that would uh, unify people. And so they gave that platform to Anthony Fauci. And by the time they figured out they were being played, he was the one playing them. And that the, the, the news media that was begging them to shut the country down and wreck their economy uh, over this virus uh, had laid this trap for them and they fell into it. And now Anthony Fauci was unassailable, untouchable. The cost of blowback of getting rid of him, um, you know, you're at a point of diminishing return. Yeah. They didn't really, and they didn't have any alternative voices because they didn't go get a second opinion. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm calling people I know that work in the White House and everything right. else. You guys know right. Scott Atlas is. You know Johnny and Edie's is. Right. You know, if you, if, you, if you interviewed any of these people. And, and it was like we had better information sometimes on the outside than what they were getting on the inside. Um, and that's not the way this is supposed to work, by the way. Uh, and so I, I think it wasn't until late in the summer when they felt like there was uh, enough fatigue, at least within their own base with the virus, they could, they could kind of push him down the totem pole a little bit, bring in a guy like a Scott Atlas. Right. Uh, but but by then, so much damage had been done. They lost the school battle. I mean, when, when we finished the manuscript to our book was March 1st, 42% of American school children were doing in-person instruction. Today, that number is 65%. That's how much that number's grown in just a month and a half. All right? And so... The, the Trump administration kind of lost the time to win that battle with the teacher unions because they once they got on the defensive with this, John, yep. it, it was just they could never get their heads totally above water. And ironically, it was the moment that I think a lot of us thought the president might be doomed when he got the virus. Right. I think a lot of people are like, oh, boy, this thing's yeah. over. Right? right. That's actually when he got out, when he got the Regeneron, the antibody cocktail that actually worked, unlike remdesivir. When he got on that, those things uh, and and came back stronger and faced it himself, that's actually when he got on the messaging he probably needed to be on, maybe like right after Memorial Day or something. But by then it was kind of too late. The guy was passed, and and they used this to get the mail-in voting that they have tried for years to get those things done. We have fought them on it. This gave them the the ruse by and the in the impetus to to do a lot of things. They have tried to do for many, many years. This gave them the excuse to do it. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, and COVID was as much a political event as it was a medical and science event. And no doubt. And and I think that w most Americans have woken up to that now. They understand it. And they understand how it played out. And um, you know, most conservatives haven't done as good a job as you have in this book and you've just even this interview of articul articulating how it happened, how it came through this way, but. Fauci is, at the end of the day, an avatar for a much larger problem that Americans yeah. are grappling with. And that is, there are two views of the world. There's the Ronald Reagan view, which is still predominant in the conservative movement, that government isn't the solution, it's the problem. And uh, Joe Biden has absolutely tripled down on the idea that big government is going to be the solution for the future. And we are going to be in an epic two to four year period where we get to see how Democrats use big government and does it work or fail? And and then can Republicans come back and counter and conservatives come back and show that 
a smaller government, uh, private industry, personal initiative, individual freedom is the better way to go. And as that's playing out, the single biggest force that's between the two is this massive, gigantic bureaucracy in government. What lessons should conservatives learn about how Fauci owned this issue? They own the narrative, so they own the action, and therefore they own the outcome. What things should we watch for? Now the bureaucrats are going to be, you know, those who are carrying out immigration or the uh, infrastructure plan. What lessons, what messaging should conservatives take to to not repeat the Fauci mistake again? I think there's three uh, important lessons we need to learn here. Uh, number one, we got to be honest about the state of many of our countrymen. That that COVID isn't an, it isn't um, a paradigm shift; it's a harvest. That a culture has to be conditioned to be this compliant, right. this instantaneously, uh, and that this didn't happen overnight. And a lot of the things we've been just kind of esoterically or philosophically warning about stuff like, you know, you keep surrendering your schools over to these uh, to these leftists, and sooner or later, you know, you'll you'll raise a generation that uh, that desires to be subservient wards of the state. Well, those sorts of things we used to warn about in in white papers and in, in D.C. or columns in the Washington Times. They're here now. Yeah. They're the reality. Pardon the pun. They're our new normal now. Okay. And so we have to deal with the reality that a lot of our countrymen were conditioned here to immediately uh, bow the knee to the state, which comes to point number two. COVID is not an outlier. It is an open. You know, we've had a lot of very divisive culture war issues in America. I certainly have very strong opinions on those issues. But as strong as our opinions were, you know, we, we, each side had their cable news programs. Each side had their favorite universities uh, or, or publications. But in the end, we could largely live together because it wasn't personal, meaning that I'm staunchly pro-life. But unless my neighbor comes to me and says, hey, um, my daughter's pregnant out of wedlock. We're thinking of killing our kid. What's your opinion? I don't know what's going on with them. You know what I'm saying? It's not personal that, that, that my, my neighbor across the street may not be pro-life. But unless it becomes personal, we're not, you know, blowing up our neighborhood in an argument about it. Um, that's about to change because what, 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 what we showed the, 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 the nihilistic spirit of the age that really wants to undo Western civilization is that if you really want to unravel this thing and make it personal, the issue that we will let you personalize is our health. And so that's in right. the last week, 100% Anthony, right. Fauci, yep. Anthony Fauci on CNN talked about gun violence, right. a public health issue. Two weeks ago, the head of CDC, is it Walensky, I believe is her name, she, she talked about a, a insufficient wokeism is now a public health issue. They're going to make everything a public health issue because look what it's done. Now, now, now we've got the teachers don't want, our, don't want to indoctrinate the kids anymore, and it's the conservatives trying to put them back in the school. It's a war on, in every street, every school district, every town. Is this restaurant, should it be open? Should I wear a mask? They have finally found the, the, the magic word to, to open the door to make this on a personal, comprehensively divisive level. And so they're going to run this tactic back on everything moving forward. And that goes to point number three. We need an intense level of both militant federalism from our elected officials, like we're just seeing Ron DeSantis do, where he's not just upholding Florida law and tradition. He's practicing the, the founding father's tradition of interposition. He is yeah. literally placing his office 
between the people of Florida and Washington, D.C. to defend them. Right. We need more of that level of militant, uh, and, and you're going to need it on a local level. If you're in a blue state, you might be in a red district or a red county. Your board of supervisors, your mayor, you know, your city council, they're your board. They, they interposition themselves between you. And if you're in, you know, a, 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 you know Orange County, California, your, your county board of supervisors interpositions you between, gets interposition between you and Gavin Newsom, for example. We need more of that. But then individually, our people hate this. They want to live their lives, you know, and I get it. I do too. But on a personal level now, we have to practice a certain level of intense activism now to salvage our country for the future for the kids, meaning that you, know, you have to be the one to run for school board now. You have to do it. You have to run for legislature now. You've got to run for board of supervisors now. You can't just outsource that and farm it out to the system or the Republican Party. You have to, you have to make sure that someone, people are holding those positions that share your convictions one way to make sure that happens is, it, is for it to be you. You've got it. You know, it's not unlike the clarion call of the 1770s, where a lot of people, the candle makers and the farmers, were, right. were forced into action to take control of their government. It's at a really remarkable moment. And I, and I think what's, you know, one of the things that uh, was amazing about Fauci's hold over the debate uh, is he, as uh, you know, listen, he had some things right. He got, he got many things wrong. Uh, but he was owning the narrative beyond what a, a bureaucrat's job was. He was doing pop culture things. He was mm -hmm. doing magazine shoots when he's telling us to stay home. He, uh, uh, you know, he had, he was throwing baseballs out. He was trying to, instead of just focus on the job of what's the best scientific thing, he was trying to be a trumpet messenger. How many more bureaucrats are going to take this route now? Because he showed that, you know, if you leverage the media, you can exceed your power as a bureaucrat. Quite frankly, Fauci, was more powerful than the people the American people elected to to reign on this issue. Yeah. Um, what are our other bureaucrats now have a thing? Are they going to do the Fauci plan going forward, which is become yes. a celebrity, own the narrative, and then because there's a market for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, that I mean, the reality is, and this is the sad reality. It's the old. It's one of the great observations from G.K. Chesterton. Once the government removes the god, the government right. becomes the god. It is not a coincidence. What, what Anthony Fauci wants to become, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny. We look back now on Jonas Salk as a hero, right? right. He was a controversial figure. He sure was at the time. <laughs> and, and in fact, there was so much skepticism about the polio vaccine, he had to inject his own children with it on national television. Yeah. Right? Right. We look back on Alexander Fleming now as a hero. Even the scientific community thought he was a crackpot. Wait, we're going to give people mold? There's medicine and molds. We're going to heal people with molds. That's nuts. You're insane. Yeah. Okay. And I, I bring these things up because in different times, the idea that Alexander Fleming and Jonas Salk, arguably the two greatest medical figures in the 20, of 20, 20th century America. Right, right. The, the idea they would become like superstar, not they're, they're luminaries, but celebrities. Like we would sing songs to them. We put their faces on pillows. We would we would sell T-shirts in salt we trust. Which just that in, in those times that just wasn't even thought of because it was understood that that level of revelry is reserved for your creator and not any human being, frankly. And so we applaud them for their accomplishments. We thank them for them. But you know, I might even name my kid Jonas. 
or Alexander. Um, you know, but I'm I'm not. You know, my kids aren't singing bedtime lullabies to you. They they do that to their creator at night. And and I think it's it's not a coincidence that the more and more uh, the, 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 that we have secularized as a society, the more you're seeing almost like a rise of political cultism. You know, uh, and it's it's really what the world was like, John, pre-U.S. Prior to the United States, every government in human history either either claimed to be God right. or divinely appointed by God, okay? This was the first government that said, actually, we're accountable to God, too, because that's where your rights come from, and our job is to defend those God-given rights. We flipped the paradigm on that. We did. Well, now that we're abandoning our founding paradigm, you know, they call themselves progressives, but we're really regressing. We're really going back to a pre-American understanding of Western civilization. That, that's really what we're going back to, the idea that government's God. Government's the highest authority. Uh, government shapes morality. Government shapes ethics. Government tells me what is right and wrong. I do whatever I am told. And I think what's really fascinating about that is, you know, you look at somebody like Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan's probably America's first openly gay, respected, celebrated intellectual. Mm -hmm. for, for decades, people like me, on the Jesus Freak side, and Andrew Sullivan were politically at each other's throats That's right. about the direction of American culture. And the argument we were really having, really Andrew Sullivan and I's argument is, when his desires, when his desires are a violation of what society says his conscience should be, should he listen to his conscience, or, or should his conscience be expanded by his desires? That's really the argument we were having. Hmm. Well what's, well, what's happening now, if you go to Andrew Sullivan's Twitter feed, John, yep. I would say at least half of what he tweets on a given day, if I told my audience, if I went on my show and just and quoted his half of his Twitter feed and said, this is what I said on Twitter today, they would believe it. Why? What's changed? Why, are, why is Bill Maher five weeks in a row given a closing rant that John Solomon and Steve Dace could have given? How did this happen? Yeah. Why, is, why, is, why is Naomi Wolf, the great feminist author, live tweeting my book and recommending it to our audience. What went on here? Well, what's going on now is we used to argue with, with our opponents on the left about what informs the human conscience. How far can the human conscience go? Right. How free am I? Am I free to redefine marriage, morality, blah, blah, blah? We're now debating, am I, am I free to even form a conscience at all? Isn't it amazing? Your conscience all. is made up by the collective now. That's the, that's yes. the big movement that is afoot that's right exactly now. Right. Yes. So and you have Andrew Sullivan saying, even to his own base, listen, man, I've bled and died for gay rights. You guys are now trying to cancel people that don't believe there's 57 genders. That's nuts. And instead of listening to him, they turn on him. Yeah, they turned on him. Like Ate their own. Traitor. Yes. And I think that what's happening here is, the, is that it's the board. Resistance is futile. Use another Star Trek reference. Critical <laughs> you are loading now, up the Star Trek references here. Look at that. Criti critical thinking is now gone. It's yeah. punished. Well, you and I are not able to find our own sources of information. That is the goal of suffocation those. right now. But uh, it's far, you know, I think the good news is it's far from going. There are so many vibrant people like yourself and, you know, what we do at Just the News that say, listen, there's still free speech and we're going to fight to the end for it. And we might even win because I, I think... The American people, part of the reason I think people like Bill Maher and others have turned is that they're very good at reading their audiences. 
and and mm-hmm. they know what resonates and what's you know the great ones like a Bill Maher or or a John Stewart or uh, a Jay Leno in his day with humor. They knew what was in the back of their head, and they were able to get it to your frontal lobe through humor or outrage or monologue. And I think even uh, some of the great left, true liberal people in America have realized that the new left have gone so far that yeah. they're alienating a large mess. We're not talking about, this isn't a 51% issue anymore. These are going to become 70, 75% issues. I agree. And I, I think- agree. You know, I like to tell my audience that a, a liberal is somebody who wants you to be able to do things that we think God says are, is dumb and immoral. A leftist is somebody who wants government to make you do those things. That's the <laughs> Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Listen, there's a couple things in this book that caught my attention. I love when we break news in a book and, you know, you've got a, well, first you got a great publisher, Postal Press. They, they did my book last year. I'm a huge fan of their work. And, uh, and this book has some great news nuggets in it that, you know, too bad the mainstream media didn't do the work on, but you have one uh, chapter or section uh, where you talk about people in the Trump White House who spoke to you that said that Fauci originally told Trump and everyone else uh, that this isn't a big deal. Don't worry about COVID. And they, and he probably also told them they shouldn't wear masks. And then all of a sudden Mm -hmm. he flip-flops. Tell us about what you learned about. That's a great news nugget that just shows how far astray his advice was. Well, we tried to get answers to questions that, you know, we pontificated on from the outside last year on our show. What are we missing? Right. And so to get those answers and to get um, people to feel free to speak freely, uh, we have a composite character in the chapter based on numerous conversations we had with people inside or with knowledge of what went on inside the White House last year. And, mm-hmm. and we gave this character, a, a, you know, a deep throat name, Veritas, Latin for truth. <laughs> and. And, and here's what, in essence, what this chapter, what we learned in this chapter is that um, with the White House overly relied on Anthony Fauci uh, as essentially uh, its vicar, uh, its appointee over this situation. And if you want to know where the talking point, for example, well, it's just a bad flu. Where did Trump get that talking point? He got it from Anthony Fauci, wrote those words, the New England Journal of Medicine, February wow. 28th. 2020. We cite that in the book several times. Basically, Trump did everything Anthony Fauci told him to do all along, from January on, and it cost him his presidency. Yeah. And, and I and 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 they they I I and I think that the media public panic spiraled so out of control so quickly they got below water that they viewed Anthony Fauci as a savior figure that was going to come in and fix this leaky department in a, yeah. in a vast corporation known as the White House, right? And by the time they figured out this guy either didn't know what he was doing or he really knew what he was doing, you know what I'm saying, John? Right. By the time they figured that out, really, it was too late. By the time they figured out that he was on his second run of flip-flops, but he's on the other side of the issue of everything he previously told them, it was too late by that point. One of the things that... um there's a tipping point moment that you identify in uh, the book that when, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of agreement that taking 15 days to pause and see if we can flatten the curve was a good idea. But once we realized that the virus had gotten to a traditional um, uh, respiratory virus, it just breaks out. You're not going to stop it. It's going to break out. It's going to run its course. That when they went to the 30 days and they changed it from 15 to flatten the curve to 30 days to slow the spread, that that gave rise to a lockdown mu- movement that had neither a scientific basis 
nor a political end game to to finish. Uh, and that's when the economy becomes sick, when mental health becomes sick, when children lose their yep. education. Tell us why that 15 to 30 day uh, move became the tipping point to all of the bad advice from uh, big government, big science. Because the first 15 days was primarily launched in reaction to the Imperial College survey out of the UK. Right. And when that thing began to unravel and fall apart, and it didn't take very long after it was it came out for that to occur, um, we were then left, remember, go back at the end of those 15 days, and there were a lot of us pressuring everybody we knew in the White House, you can't do this. We have to end this now. And remember, it looked when we got to the end of them like Trump was going to yank the plug on this and yeah. started talking about, you know, an American resurrection around Easter, right, as a play on words, right? And then that Sunday, we all were blindsided when Fauci went on television and said, yeah, we've talked to the president and that's not going to happen. He knows that's too dangerous. And what happened is we took this foreign model from the UK um, and we, we went with our own domestic version at the University of Washington. Yep. At, I remember that. We IAC. covered that well here. It was remarkable. Yeah. And once, so once, and, and then what happens, and you know politics, John, you've been around it longer than I, than I have, brother. Once they imported that model into the White House as part of their, as part of their ecosystem and habitat, as the days go by and none of its calculations are happening, you could do an entire book of bad IHME model predictions, right. an entire book of just those. Yep. Then you're left with a really difficult position where some people on your team are going to say, dude, we got to cut our losses right now. Everybody and other people on the team are going to say, if we do that, we look like a bunch of dumbasses. Right. We don't know what we're doing. Double and down. Then you feel like you have to double down and own it. Yep. Right? Yep. And, and, and then you end up taking on baggage that was never meant for you. This is what the Republicans did after the, after the 2016 election. They didn't repeal Obamacare like they promised 50 times. And then what happens is when the system gets even worse, uh, they now take on the baggage of, of Democrat policies because they didn't do what they said they were going to do about it. And that's what happened here with these 30 days to flatten the curve, or I'm sorry, 30 days to slow the spread. And now you provide governors the political cover so that they don't look like the tyrants now. Gavin Newsom, Andrew Cuomo, Gretchen Whitmer, they, Larry Hogan, a Republican governor yeah, in Maryland. Right. They get to now say, I'm not the bad guy. I'm following the White House. Uncle Sam made me do this. Yep. Yes. They get to Pontius Pilate this sucker real quick, like, and wash their hands <laughs> of it that's while, funny. while their hands are yeah. all over him. That's okay? right. And, and that's when the narrative was lost. That's going to go down as one of the dumbest management decisions in the history of the U.S. presidency. Yeah. Will be the 30 days to slow the spread. Everything, the rest of the year, what, what I said on my show at the time, what the president should have done, if you go back to the 15 days to flatten the curve, we went into a recession about midway through, remember, yep, that was primarily driven by layoffs in the healthcare system. Yep. One of the most amazing stats in our book, and there are many, we have more footnotes than pages. One of the most amazing stats in our book is that in 2020, hospitalizations in America actually decreased by 8% over what industry forecasters were predicting at the beginning of the year before we even knew what a COVID was. Wow. Now, wait. Didn't we shut everything down to stop the healthcare system from getting overrun? Well, we, we did such a great job that we actually underperformed industry calculations for hospitalizations, even with the added extra COVID business. And that's why they had so much damn time to do all those annoying TikTok videos 
in a lot of these empty <laughs> hospitals around the country. And what I thought the president should have done, John, at the end of those 15 days, he just said, you guys did a great job. We're, I'm getting memos. We're even closing hospitals now. Yep. Okay. Um, we flattened the curve. We've got a few hot spots in America, Seattle, Portland, New York, Boston, some places that are going to have to be uh, uh, isolated for a little while longer while we uh, deal with it there and focus our resources there. For the rest of you, though, here are the vulnerable demographics. All right. Don't don't take any, um, you know, don't don't play any games. I don't care if it's ninety nine point two. If you're running any fever, don't go to work. Right. Common sense stuff. Yep. Could and let the economy go on. First of April. Yes. The, and, um, and the other one. Here's the funny part about that, Steve. You know, I've had about 10 or 12 medical experts on this, and that was the playbook. The playbook had always been if we hit a pandemic, figure out how to protect the vulnerable, and and, uh, but don't lock the world down because the lockdown actually traps people who are sick together and and makes it worse. The we literally Fauci wrote a playbook that he then didn't follow. If you go back to the pandemic work work of 2005, six at the end of Bush and the ones that were developed, the playbook was protect, figure out who's vulnerable, protect the vulnerable, mm-hmm. put precautions in for everybody else, and get back to normal. And we did just the opposite. Your book does the best job of anyone I've seen at making that case. And I think you, more than anyone else, found the tipping point of disaster for COVID-19. And it was in that period when we went from 15 days to flatten the curve, 30 days to slow the spread. Remarkable reporting for isolating that moment as the tipping point. Well, and just to further what you just said, another one of the mic drop stats in our book, um, you know, the greatest lie of all of this was asymptomatic spread. Fauci That's right. said in January of last year that yep. respiratory virus outbreaks are not spread asymptomatically. He was right. He's right. He, and that's been proven right about this. The reason why that matters is because that was the, the genesis for why we had to do all these quarantines of the healthy, that you and I would go to an event, not know we have it, get it, come home, kill grandma, right? Well, here's an incredible stat to show what a miserable failure this strategy was. 41%, so almost half, 41% of all deaths with COVID in America occurred in America's nursing homes or long-term care facilities, John, where less than 1% of Americans live. The median age of death for COVID in America is 78, the average American lifespan. 95% 95% of deaths with COVID in America were people 50 or over. Yep. So we did all of this, all right? We lost 20% of our businesses last year. Some states like Michigan lost a third of them. We, we, we lost proms, graduations, benchmark life moments that you never get back. Nope, you're never getting them back. That you'll never, ever attend. Weddings that we put off. Things, cancer screenings, mental health screenings. Yep. I know one of my, a good friend of mine, his friend blew his brains out because he basically relied on AA meetings to keep mm. him sober and they took those away. Okay. Mm. Mm. All mm. these things that will never, ever return. We did all this to save grandma. And when you look at the stats and the data, we didn't save grandma anyway. Oh. We did it for nothing. We, we actually failed to protect the vulnerable and we locked up the healthy. And uh, yes. uh, we literally threw the playbook upside down. I've had numerous medical experts come on the show. Tell me about that. It is one of the greatest failures of American governments and of American science has ever occurred. And all throughout it, there were brilliant voices warning us that we were going in the wrong direction. And the monolith of social media, Facebook, Twitter, fake fact checkers, and big bureaucrats, you know, locked us into 
the absolute worst solution. And we now know, listen, the history is going to look back and it won't matter what some Facebook fact checker says in the near future. We got this wrong. And, you know, and we're going to come out of this if America will revive because we're always a great nation. But we, we self-inflicted uh, a, a solution that was far worse than the disease itself. It's really remarkable. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, thank you for, listen, this is a great book, uh, folks. If you haven't gotten it, you got to get it. This is a must read. The Fauci and Bargain, the most powerful and dangerous bureaucrat in American history by Steve Deese, who's been uh, kind enough to join us today and his co-author, Todd Erzin. It's published by Post Hill Press, a great label. Uh, I can't encourage you enough to go get this book, read it, relive it. If you want to learn from our mistakes so we don't repeat them again, this is the starting point to understanding everything we got wrong in COVID-19. Steve, congratulations on a great, great body of work. This is a tremendous public service. Thank you, John. Very kind and uh, always appreciate it. You gave me my career a kickstart over there at the Washington Times back in the day. So thank you for that. Yeah, and we're big fans then and we are again today. <laughs> thank you, John. Have a great one. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, God bless. Goodbye.